Welcome everyone. Um, so good to be here. How good is coming to church? How good is this worship? Um, I feel like there's not much more to say really um, from what's already been shared, but um, I do believe God's got a word for us today. And um, yeah, really privileged to be here to share that message with you. Um, my name's Simon Herbal. I'm an elder here. Um, and uh, yeah, Dave asked me to come and, and share um, this next part of our, our sermon series that's called DNA. Um, Dave shared a cracker last week on, uh, the, on Holy Spirit. I shouldn't say the Holy Spirit if you were there. It's Holy Spirit and prayer. Um, and he's asked me to come and share uh, three more of our core values. Um, servant-hearted, generous and authentic. Now I got three so I figure... I get an extra 15 minutes, so you better buckle in. Uh, isn't it great that you get to tell the same jokes in both services? <laughs> Especially when they're so funny. <laughs> um, so, what do you think of when you hear servant-hearted, generous and authentic? They're pretty basic Christian teachings, aren't they? Christian 101. It's, when you, it's what you learn in Sunday school. Be good to other people. Be kind, be generous, be, be generous with your time and your money. Did anyone grow up listening to Salty, the singing songbook? Yes, and my kids still listen to him. Um, one of the first things I think of when I hear those values is a song about Matthew twenty twenty six. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to be servant of all. And it's appealing, isn't it? Who doesn't want to be great? We want to be great. Of course we do. We're human. So how well are we actually, how, how good are we actually at, at, at being a Christian? How, how great are we? How generous are you? How well do you serve? Are you great? Maybe you're just average. Maybe you're just trying to match up with the people around you, the Christians around you, just trying to do the status quo. But if you are just trying to do the status quo, is that really authentic? Or is that you just trying to, to do what's right, uh, to, to do it because the Bible says so? Alternatively, alternatively, maybe you feel like you're quite the opposite. Maybe you're here today feeling like a pretty terrible Christian. Maybe you beat yourself up about all the ways that you fail. Maybe you never feel like you ever live up to the Christian standard. You look around at all these other people in the room with their happy smiles and their good behaviour and you think, God must be pretty disappointed in me. And that's the question I want to try to answer today. What is a great Christian? Is there actually such a thing? So growing up, I think I've told you about my friend Michael um, uh, Isaac's uh, uncle. Um, I've known Michael since he was four, um, and we were really we had really close family friends, and we just did everything together. Um, after when I when I was twelve, we moved to Handorf, and he was he was living on one side of the main street, and I was living on the other. And so, pretty much every school holidays, we would spend our days. Um, going on adventures around Handorf, we'd walk 
um, to the local dam and fish. We'd uh, cross the freeway, I think we did one day. Um, we, we would try and find anything that we could do uh, that was an adventure or, or give us some sort of mission or purpose. Um, the story I'm going to tell you about today is probably one of our more embarrassing uh, missions that we went on. Um, and so uh, yeah it was school holidays um, nothing much was going on and really the relationship between Michael and me Michael um, was was the brainstormer Michael was the man who came up with the plan and I was just the kind of the, the dumb sidekick that sort of followed him around and I was just keen for any any adventure I was keen for anything so he came up with the the plan he came up with the mission, and I was, I was there, hand on heart, ready to go with him. Um, so Michael was walking past the uh, Harndorf wishing well one day, and he, he noticed all the gold and silver coins uh, that were in the bottom of the wishing well, and Michael decided that he had to have them. Um, and I obviously got dragged along for, for the ride, but Michael... Probably it's not his best um, scheme that he came up with. He decided that he was going to try get a big wad of blue tack, stick it on a stick, and, he, and we were going to try and go fishing for the coins. Now, I sort of knew that it's pretty unlikely that's going to work, and that was probably one of the reasons I was happy to go along. Um, I'm not encouraging this, by the way, kids. Um, so what we did, we, we didn't want to go when there was people around, so we, we set our alarms, midnight. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we put on our dark clothing and we, we snuck out of home and we met each other on the main street and, uh, <laughs> and we got to the wishing well and within two minutes, you know, it was so obvious that this is not going to work. You know, like Michael was fishing around um, I'd already given up, but um, just like George Clooney in, in uh, what's that movie? I just had it, um, Ocean's Eleven, thank you. Um, just like George Clooney, Michael wasn't going to give up. He was going to try everything. So he was plugging away, and lo and behold, what pulls up next to us is a police car. <laughs> um, now, I was a 13-year-old. I'd never spoken to a police officer before, let alone... Um, you know, at night without my parents. And uh, I had a fairly strong conscience <laughs> and the guilt just got to me. And before I even knew what Michael was going to do, I bolted. I, uh, <laughs> I was gone. I, I think I jumped about three fences. I, I found a little hidey hole and I was not coming out and no one was going to find me. What we didn't organise before we went was what we were going to do if a police officer came along, because Michael, being George Clooney, thought he would play it cool. So he did the old mic drop uh, stick in blue tack in the bush, and he just started strolling down the main street as if nothing happened. <laughs> now, obviously, a police officer who sees one person bolt behind a, a, a fence and then another one just acting like everything's normal, he was going to stop and speak to him. So... Within a few minutes, I'm sitting in my little hidey hole wondering what uh, Michael's going to do. And I hear this, Simon, Simon, the police officer wants you to come out. 
<laughs> so I was, I was sitting there and I'm like, no way, Michael, I am not moving. I am not going, I'm not going out there. But after the third time in about five minutes, I realised this police officer was not going to go away. And I had to climb out of my hidey hole and I had my tail between my legs, my head down, and I had to, it was the hardest thing I've probably ever had to do was walk towards that police officer knowing my guilty conscience, knowing I was possibly going to get in trouble, never having experienced what a police officer was going to do. I was expecting him to go and tell my parents or, um, you know, take me, I don't know, take me to cells or whatever. Um, so I, um, he, he ended up just taking down our names, searching our bags. We didn't have anything illegal. And so he, he gave us a stern talking to and sent us directly home, which we, we did. Um, <laughs> Now, why do I tell you that embarrassing story about myself? Because I think in life, we know so many experiences where people in the same situation, people in the same circumstances act completely different, don't they? Just like I ran and hid behind a fence and Michael pretended like nothing was happening. So many times we experience people who do in the same circumstances, do the complete opposite thing. And that's what I want to look at today in a a story that you're probably all very familiar with, the story of of the prodigal son. It's a story about two sons, actually. And, And they have very contrasting reactions to the same father. And it's a story that is just as relevant for us here today. So before I get into it, um, I just want to pray. Um, I was reading um, on the plaque on the building across the way this morning. I found it so encouraging. Um, Proverbs 24.3. By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Father, we come to you now. Um, knowing that your word can penetrate to our very heart, to our souls, Father. And we are desperate to hear from you. We're desperate to, to know that you are here for us, that you are ready to fill, our, our tre- oh, fill us with your treasure, Father. We want to be transformed by your love. We want to we be people um, who are called your children. We, we want to live in the in the truth of that, Father. So we just pray now, as I speak, that your words um, would go out, Father, that your spirit would go out and you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read Luke 15, 11 to 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. 
and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His fathers came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, this many years I have served you. Everyone say served. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I, will, I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, we don't really use the word prodigal anymore, do we? Uh, If you don't know what prodigal means, it means spending money or using resources freely and and recklessly or being wastefully extravagant. And that's what the son does in this story, doesn't he? Even as modern Australians, we can understand what the son did was wrong, but we might not fully comprehend the emphasis that Jesus is using to highlight his his point. So I just want to look at a few... um, points in the story that we can fill out a bit. <clears throat> when the youngest son goes to his father, asks for his inheritance, that wasn't just a small request. An inheritance is just that, something that you get when your father passes away. And so to request it whilst your father is alive, it's a huge offence. It's a massive slap in the face. The son is basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead. Not only that, but the land that the father owned would have been handed down through the generations and entrusted to him by his own father. In those days, your status in the community was based on how much land you owned and the the more successful your estate was, the more you were respected among your community. Essentially, by asking for his portion of the land, his son is not just severely offending his father, but he's also embarrassing him in front of his community and bringing down his status. And what does the son immediately do with that land? He sells it and he takes the profits and he goes off to squander them. What does he spend it on? Wild living. 
Not a new career startup, not investments, but on partying and prostitutes. Can you get any lower than that in the Jewish community? Yeah, actually you can. You can end up as a servant in a foreign land caring for the most despised animal in the Jewish culture, the pig. And not only caring for them, but actually wanting their food. Can you see the emphasis that Jesus is putting on this story? This younger younger son has completely and utterly failed. For him to even contemplate returning to his village was a, a selfish thing to do. Returning with nothing in his possession, without even having shoes on his feet, would only bring more shame to his family, to his father. Culturally, if a son was to return in that state, the only proper response of the father was an open and public rejection of him in front of the whole village. Basically, if the son approached the father, the culturally appropriate thing to do um, was for the father to slap him across the face and send him away. Now, you don't have to be an ancient Jew to recognise that the father's response is, is not a normal fatherly response. Instead of being bitter or angry, or even at least throwing in a good, I told you so, fathers, who loves a good old, I told you so, I might have been guilty of a few of them. No, instead of that, he is watching and waiting for his son. And when he sees him, he doesn't just wait for him to approach. He, he runs to him. Now, running in any culture is, a, is dramatic, right? But in the Jewish culture, it's not only dramatic, it's undignified, especially for a man um, of his age and status. They would only ever walk slowly and dignified. They would never, ever run. One of the, the main reasons for that is because to run, you have to grab the front of your robe and pick it up. Doing that would expose his upper thighs and anything else that was visible, which, of course, is a little bit inappropriate. Now, I was thinking of the modern-day equivalent. Who had a coffee today? Uh, who got served by Tim Barnett? Yeah? Uh, well... If you ever rock up to Tim's house unannounced, uh, he's also an elder nomination, a nominee as well, um, he is always in his jocks. So don't go barging, don't go barging into his house because um, usually he's, if, if someone knocks, he's running to the bedroom to put some pants on. Um, also, um, a few years ago, if you Google Maps his home, he was out in just footy shorts, no top, no no shoes, just watering his lawn. So that, <clears throat> that's a little fun fact for you for Tim. Um, but basically in that culture, if you saw someone running, it was because it was a serious emergency. And yet the father clearly has no thought for what other people thought of him. He is so overjoyed to see his son that he runs to him. And how does the son react? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He is clearly blown away by his father's forgiveness and he loses all thought of himself. All he can do is acknowledge that he is unworthy of the love that his father has for him. 
Now, the robe and the ring and the shoes, they're all culturally significant too. Just like Joseph's colourful coat, the gift of a fine coat is a symbol of honour and favour. The ring that the the son received was not just jewellery, it's a symbol of having been assigned authority by the one who gave it. And the shoes were pretty obvious. Only slaves or servants uh, didn't wear shoes. So when the son is given these gifts, we see him literally transformed from an unworthy slave dealing with pigs to becoming wholly and completely a son once again. Now, I heard a friend of mine preach on this same passage and he made an observation that I've, I've never seen before. This parable is called the prodigal son and it has a prodigal son in it. But the main focus of the passage is not actually on the prodigal son. The main focus of the parable is on the prodigal father. A father who is wastefully extravagant towards his son. A father whose love for his son is so deep, so strong, that he wholeheartedly receives him back into his family and lavishes gifts on him. What kind of father would do that? Would I do that as a father? A father who obviously loves his son more than anything else. Now, I'm not sure about you, but the first time I heard this, um, this story preached, that was where the story ended. And for good reason too. We like a nice, neat, happy ending, don't we? No one really wants to be bothered um, hearing about the older brother and his bad attitude. He clearly is just jealous that his younger brother is the favourite child, right? But is he really unjustified in his reaction? Have you ever felt like one of your siblings was treated better than you? How did that feel? My parents are in the room, so no, no, they were very gracious. They loved us all equally. There might be a few extra photos of me around in the house. (laughs) Now I've lost my thought. Um, I think we need to acknowledge that the oldest brother's feelings are at least realistic. What his response does show us is that the older son has never really got to know or understood his father. All that time he worked on the estate and yet he, he's nothing like his father. Nothing of his character has been rubbed off on him. And if we look closely, something really stands out in the response of the older brother. There is a key word in what he says. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. I don't know what your Bible translation says, but my translation says served. But actually, when you look at it in the Greek, it means deluel. It means to be a slave, a servant, to be in slavery or subjection. Don't you see, all this time the son has been working for his father. He has not enjoyed it one bit. He has not been working with his father. He hasn't been working alongside his father. But he has seen his work as slavery, as subjugation. His father is clearly a man who is extremely generous, extremely gracious and fair, and yet he has no relationship with him. All the work he has done for his father has been contractual, like it's simply a chore 
that's required of him in order to get what he really wants, which is his inheritance. In other words, he's not really any different from the younger son. He doesn't love his father. He's just waiting for him to die so he can get his inheritance, so that he can finally serve himself. Do you see the irony in the story? Doesn't become clear that these brothers couldn't have acted more differently. But deep down, they are just the same. Just like I ran away and Michael stayed, they acted completely differently in the same situation. One of them ran away, enslaved to his passions. The other one stayed and was enslaved to his service. Neither of them truly understood their position as sons. Neither of them really knew their father and neither of them had taken on any of his character. So why did Jesus tell this story? To understand what, who he was speaking to, what he was speaking into, we have to go back to the start of Luke 15, before the three parables. Luke 15 verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Don't you see? Jesus is in a room full of both of the older and younger brothers. The tax collectors and the sinners are like the younger brothers, the younger son that Jesus is choosing to welcome in, despite their sin and disobedience, despite them running away. Just like the father, he is showing his love to them. And the Pharisees and the scribes are the older brother. They don't like the attention Jesus is giving to these sinners because they believe that you have to earn your salvation. You earn God's love and adoration through good works and obedience to the law. Isn't Jesus spectacular? In this short story, he has a way of cutting to the hearts of everyone in that room, showing them how they were all going down the wrong path, how they were all choosing slavery over sonship. And that's what Jesus does, doesn't he? Whenever he speaks, he seems to be able to reveal something about our nature that breaks us open and cuts us to the heart. This message is just as much for us as anyone else. Everyone in this room is guilty of acting like an older or a younger brother. Paul says it best in Ephesians 2.3 when he says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We might all look a little bit different in the way that we do that. But ultimately, we turn our backs on sonship and we enslave ourselves to the world. We enslave ourselves to serving ourselves. But what does Paul go on to say? He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. You see, the best thing about this story is the person who's telling it. He's the example of a different son, a third son. The one and only son who knew his father and had a relationship with him. He wasn't running. He wasn't striving. He was perfectly secure in his relationship with the father. And he knew the father's deep love for his children. He comes to reveal the father's love for us. He says, Those who know me, those who know my love, they know my Father. 
And he goes out seeking to bring his older and younger brothers back into the family. He didn't just embarrass himself by lifting up his cloak and running to us. No, he was totally humiliated. He came to earth as one of us. He took on our sin and took the punishment we deserved. And even as we hung him on a cross, naked to die, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He bore our sins. He died that we might see the extravagant love of the Father, that we might be free to access that extravagant, reckless, prodigal love. Do you see the cost that Christ paid for us? And so often in church, we focus on the cost of our atonement through the blood of Christ, the extreme sacrifice he made for us, and rightly so. There is no greater sacrifice that what Christ made. But sometimes we can feel the weight of Jesus' sacrifice. And sometimes we can become a bit too serious and a bit too solemn, can't we? I am so guilty of that. You know that just as much as I do. But what we forget to see, what this parable reminds us of, is that although it costs Christ greatly, it's absolutely free. Do you see that? His gift of love is free. It's not, what we, it's not that we can receive it freely. We must, must receive it freely. Otherwise, we become just like the older brother. So you might be asking, what does this parable have to do with being servant-hearted, generous and authentic? What we have to see is that we love because he first loved us. God's love is not like any other love we know. It's not just powerful, it is power. As Dave preached last week, through Christ we receive Holy Spirit and we no longer live by the flesh, we live by the Spirit. That love is almost too good to be true, isn't it? It's not a love that forces us to do anything. It's not a love that goes away if we fail or fall. Romans 8.37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.14-15 to 15 says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Don't you love that? That's how and why we serve. God's love compels us. That's how and why we are free to be generous. God's love compels us. As we rescue secure in the truth of his love, we take on his love for those around us. Put simply, we, we live and we love out of the overflow of his love for us. So what does that look like practically? I can't really answer that and really I don't want to. 
I could get up here and give you a list of the top 10 practices of a servant-hearted person. Or I could try to tell you all the mental and physical benefits of being generous. And that there are benefits, no doubt, because we're living as we're created to live. We're living as children of God. But if we're not serving out of the overflow of God's love, then it's all empty. Our relationship with the Father must come first. And as we seek Him and His call on our lives, then opportunities to serve and to be generous will just become obvious. And whether we see results from them or not, it doesn't matter. Sometimes we will be recognised for our service and other times we won't. But if our security is in God's love, then, then that's okay. Sometimes we'll feel rewarded. Other times we won't. <clears throat> that's okay. Sometimes we will give generously and it will go awesomely. Sometimes we'll give generously and it won't go so good. But that's okay. And that's where our authenticity comes in. What's, what's more authentic about someone giving or serving when they have no agenda? What's more authentic than someone who forgives like Christ? Who forgives and accepts someone without even knowing if they're sorry? It's really that simple. But simple doesn't always mean easy, does it? The New Testament is full of letters speaking to Christians who, after being freed from sin, being freed from death through Christ, they fall back into living in the flesh living for themselves. Galatians 5, 13 to 18 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not, let, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you, do not, <clears throat> sorry, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. You are not being an older brother. So let me ask that question again. Are you a great Christian? Or should I ask this another way? Are you choosing to be a son? Are you choosing to be a daughter? Or are you choosing to be a slave? As the band comes up, <clears throat> I just want to take five minutes before the end of the service for us to have some quiet time and reflect on our lives and give the Spirit a chance to prompt our hearts. How is the Spirit... spirit speaking to your heart today. <clears throat> because I think if we're honest with ourselves, even as believers, we still find ourselves falling into living like the younger or the older brother. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I jump from being one brother to the other in a matter of minutes. Are you here today feeling like the younger brother, that you're not a worthy Christian, that you're not a good Christian? Are you so aware of your sin, of your failings, of all the times that you choose to run headlong into things of this world, run into greed, into lust, into gossip, into seeking your own status, 
Are you weighed down by your guilt? Well, come. Come and receive the free love of the Father. Because in Christ, all your sins are washed away. You don't need to build yourself up to to be righteous. You're righteous in Christ. It's free. We just have to repent and receive. Acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge where we've fallen short and come to the Father. And He, it's free. His love is free and He freely gives it. Just like the older father, uh, just like the father gave the younger son, accepted him back in. Or are you being convicted of being an older brother? Because we are so prone to falling into the trap of trying to prove our own righteousness, aren't we? By comparing ourselves to other Christians, by trying to be elite in the way, in our faith, in the way that we speak or act, in the way that we serve or give. Do you look down at other Christians who are a bit less polished than yourself? Or are you holding unforgiveness towards someone? Are you frustrated by people? Do you find it hard to love? If you're really honest, you can be kind to people, but do you find it hard to love them? The Father comes to you. He comes to us and says, you have received freely from me. So freely give. Stop striving. Stop trying to work your way into His kingdom. Receive the love of the Father Receive the love the Father has for you in Christ and don't put yourself under a a yoke of slavery. We cannot earn our way into His kingdom. And to to try is is to offend Christ. It's to slap Christ in the face and say, His gift wasn't good enough. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So let's take some time to meditate on the Father's love, to commune with the Father. Let him tell you what he thinks of you, that he loves you like the younger son. He runs to you despite all that you do. Receive his love afresh. Receive it freely through Christ and know your status as a son. Know your status as a daughter, as a child of God. Let everything you do come out of the overflow of His love. And when you mess up, when you fail, when you get it wrong, He's still there with His arms wide open for us to come back again. So we're going to take some time just to meditate on that. And after that, we're going to sing our last song. And I just want to leave that time open for anyone who wants to come forward. Um, I'll be up here. And anyone, anyone who feels like they want to pray uh, for someone, feel free to come forward. And, um, but if you feel the Spirit prompting you today, if you, if you want, to, want to come up for prayer, then please feel free to do that. 
You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.